Welcome to Innovating Music, a podcast from the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music and the UCLA Center for Music Innovation. I'm your host, Dr. Gigi Johnson. Excited today to have with us as guest Seth Schachner from Strat Americas. He really shared a great history of how he's been able to be that deal guy, putting together disparate deals in a changing music industry to now helping different areas that are uh, unknown, underknown, international, cross-border, and uh, pulling together those pieces with some of the same skills that he has built being part of a lot of early digital music. So he shares how he works on partnerships and strategy in Latin America and other spaces and places, looking at different types of social music, virtual reality, and how he's been able to build from time at AOL, Zamba Records, Sony, lots of other places, um, a leading edge practitioner uh, consultancy that is getting a chance to work on the edges of all sorts of cool things in music. Uh, this is the first of what's going to be probably two interviews with Seth. The second one, which we'll follow up with in a few weeks, is also taking a look at a lot of the current details of all of the interesting moving parts and pieces of deals in the digital music space. One of the themes that's, this is, I think, year three now of this podcast of Innovating Music is that it, it, we really hear more and more a story of kind of bridging old and new and taking old skills, old relationships, a lot of depth or different dimensions, and people who have been finding their own way or new tools to connect a lot of the existing industry, people, structures, et cetera, to new tech and new ways of doing things. And it, and, and, I know that you were wonderful in coming to share that with my music industry fundamentals class at UCLA this past term, um, which was a great way to kind of wrap a lot of that stuff up. But I, I really love that lens in the way that you kind of live that story. So can I beg your tolerance to maybe take our audience through how you got to the current spot? And then we can come back to the cool type stuff that you are sure. um, connecting the dots and the pieces on that are between all the types of old industry and new industry stuff. How in the world did you get to this spot? Sure. And I love coming to your class. It's a great environment. So I think, I think there's, there's a couple levels to the answer. So, you know, there, there are some overriding industry factors, macro factors, if you will, that certainly weren't unique to me, but that I think affected a lot of us that worked in the recorded music industry, whether you're in labels or other parts, but particularly for the labels over the last, you know, decade basically and then there were certainly some individual factors i mean just totally on a macro factor you know obviously the recorded music industry i think roughly halved itself in terms of the size say between you know the late 90s and and uh, the early part of say well you know around 2010 you know and it, you had a period where even going further back into the 90s you had six major recorded music labels i worked for for you know, several of them, that there's now three left. And so I think you know, anyone who was in those structures during that time and spent you know, more than a short amount of time experienced reorgs, you know, all sorts of merger and acquisition activity. And so you know, I think there's more than a few people that were either in senior to mid-level executive roles that in some way got unloaded, put into the market in different, in, in different, different ways. So I, I'm certainly, I think I lived through four different mergers or demergers 
in an 11-year run at something that became Sony Music. And certainly that, that informed some of the activity, you know, and, and, and what happened to me. But I think on an individual level, um, for me, you know, I've, I'm someone who's worked in major media and tech companies for most of my career. Um, I think if you turn it up all the interests, I was like, I think they work for everyone except for Disney, something like that, or, you know, <laughs> you know, every interest except one that's been controlled by Disney. Not that I don't like Disney. I love Disney, but, but, um, you know, so I, I, I worked my way up actually starting here in Los Angeles, you know, in kind of a baby business analyst job at 20th Century Fox through a lot of different steps that, that got me to where, where I am. And, and I think, um, I experienced all these mergers and, and all sorts of changes, you know, throughout my career. Um, I had a wonderful run that ended at Sony in 2010, um, spent a few years at Microsoft, which was a really interesting place. But, uh, for me, it was a big complex organization. And well, before you get past I, that, so yeah, you, sure. you came from being in, in film and music. So you're kind of living living those spaces, and then you ended up working with Microsoft in media. Yeah, um, you know, I'm someone who pretty much has always worked, you know, in I guess that area where content meets distribution, whether that's through technology or audience building partnerships and business development roles. And I I started at 20th Century Fox. I mean, it was was one of my first steps in the entertainment field, uh, 1992. And just doing basic when we, when we were small children. Yeah. And I'm Fox Plaza. And, you know, and um, at the time, Fox had a, a deal with BMG, one of the, which was one of the six major labels at the time, Bertelsmann owned. And I started modeling films on tracks if, um, as, as part of my duties. I mean, my, my main duties there were to model film deals before we would green light them and learn the front end, the back end, the projections and, I'm kind of a marketing-oriented business development person, so it was, it was definitely not the easiest thing in the world for me, but, but I learned it and kind of used to go to my boss and say, hey, I, I really love music. It's why I got into this business. Can I, can, I, can I go down to the music area and learn some stuff and help? And he said, sure. So, so I started modeling movie deals, soundtrack deals. I think Fox had a, a soundtrack releasing deal at the time with BMG and started learning just the basics of how music deals work, back ends, producers, points, recoupment scenarios. And so um, I worked my way up from there, got hired at a company called, um, at the time it was called MCA Music. It was the smallest of the big six record labels um, in a business development role at a holding company there that held, I think it was six different companies at the time, um, record labels, um, event production groups, live entertainment, and, um, you know, I'm academically an MBA and I know you guys got a great business school program. And so I think we talked about this a little bit with your, your students, but you kind of come in through the front gate, if you will. And, you know, you have certain elements on your resume and that's, you're lucky to get hired for something that you like. And I think the ticket in for me was sort of these financial and modeling type jobs, if you will. Well, this was me when I came in as well. I mean, I I originally, one of my nine career areas was doing modeling at Paramount. So totally lived that dream and walked in that door. Yeah. And I think think for some people... you know, I don't know. I mean, I had a lot of angst at the time doing it. It was, it was, you know, I mean, I, I, here I was in, in a major Hollywood film studio or in a major record company. And, and the gig was just to sit on a, it was a Lotus spreadsheet at the time and to do, you know, spreadsheet modeling. So it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily my dream, but, but it was something I kind of got reasonably decent at. 
I think I still remember, I mentioned this to your class the first day I started at MCA <clears throat> was the day that Kurt Cobain took us on Life Actually. I remember that, but I also remember um, one of my bosses, Zach Horowitz, who's still a mentor to me, um, who I really have tremendous respect for coming in. And I think the first assignment was, um, you know, we're negotiating with the estate of Jimi Hendrix. Um, um, go out and figure out mechanical royalties, see if he can tweak it, do, you know, do, do, do a modeling scenario. I think that was assignment number one for me walking in. So, you know, it was, it was, it was that sort of work that I guess I cut my teeth on and got into the business on. But, um, but I transitioned to music um, and a couple years, about two years into the MCA experience, they were merging, I believe, was it, was it with Seagram's at the time? And I had done a strategic plan for our chairman, a guy named Al Teller, um, <laughs> who I think, you know, I also like the respect well, also, for. I was on the banking side yeah. of that deal, so. Um. Oh, okay, so you see, you know, so we're probably different <laughs> it, rooms. It all um, comes around, but, but, I, but part of it, I mean, so coming in and knowing how to understand yeah. the nuts and bolts, also understand the economics when the industry changes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and, you know, I think, um, I mean, look, sometimes you can see these macro things when you're in the trenches, sometimes you can't. I mean, one of the, the things that, probably one of the coolest projects that, you know, I got at the time, which I, you know, I, frankly, I can't tell you I really knew, but, but we, we started to look at this thing called the internet. We didn't, you know, we didn't really know what the opportunities were. This is 1995, 95, 94. And so I was part of the team that led this project looking at, you know, what is the internet for Al and what could be the opportunities for us. And um, around that time, a very good buddy of mine who I'd gone to graduate business school with, who's a UCLA grad, but we went to Columbia Business School together in New York City, a guy named Roger Neal, who is still a dear friend, had left uh, his role at Time Warner to go to this startup in Northern Virginia. And I still remember having dinner with him one night here in LA at an Indian restaurant with him and his wife and my wife. And he was like, I'm going to this thing called an online service. It's in Virginia. And I was like, what, you know, what the hell is that? And, um, you know, three months later, he called me and said, it's this thing. We, we're called America Online. We're growing and we need someone to run a music channel for us. Would you, would you come do it? And so I, I happily moved from my modeling roles to, to something that was much more, you know, being dropped into the front lines of an emerging business in Virginia. And uh, it really changed things for me immensely. It was, it was an unbelievable transition for me to be dropped into something that was like, it was like a startup summer camp when I was there in Virginia at the time. I, I still remember, I mean, walking in to meet someone who was on my team and literally they had like eight contracts that had been printed out with blank spaces in them. And one of the staff was just writing in, you know, polygram, 8% deal, not exclusive, you know, like literally without, without any kind of thought you know, on the relationships that were being made at the time. And so I, I kind of got dropped in by fire in the earliest days of digital music to AOL's music team. And it, it really changed my life professionally. And it was, it was a fun, somewhat discordant, wild experience. But um, I still look back on it really fondly just because of like the way it transformed things for me and, and added completely different dimension to, you know, what would have been prior just sitting in offices modeling stuff. So I'm going to take a pause and ask us to think about if I was someone under 30 thinking of AOL, I think of this uh, ad-based thing that's been bought by Oath and isn't the big 
um, uh, dial mover that it was at the time where it was the, the closed splinter net closed system where you go in and you'd get your entertainment, you'd get everything. It's not just what your uh, grandmother still uses with an AOL email address, but it, it was where it was actually for a while on the cutting edge of things. <laughs> yeah. At the time, you know, in the United States and to some degree globally, you know, AOL was like the central player getting everyone onto the internet, basically the commercial internet. And I, and let me just, let me just even pause that back and just simply say that AOL was, was probably the principal online player for, for most Americans and, and, and many international audiences, you know, in, in the market in general, this was before web access and web browsers and, and had even kind of come into popular acceptance. In fact, when I was at AOL, we had, you know, the explosion of things like Netscape and what we had, what we thought was a dire threat from, you know, Microsoft who were bringing out a competing closed internet ecosystem called M competing MSN, which is a competing ecosystem. But AOL was a closed kind of content universe. It was built um, around something called Rain Man, which was AOL's proprietary, you know, software at the time. And and we set up a little online universe across lots of different verticals, sports, entertainment, weather, travel, um, finance, life, finance, absolutely. Um, licensed in content from big media companies, but also had an arm of the company called the greenhouse that set up our own proprietary ventures as well, which we invested in. And probably most critically, um, that overlied all this were these communication tools that, you know, maybe younger people would laugh at it now, but, but chat rooms, message boards, um, something called AOL instant messenger. Um, it trained you know. us. It trained us. It, I mean, in many ways, we've, yeah, the reason I wanted to break it out a bit is that we're take that pause because in many ways we thought we were getting past that, that we were getting into the open internet. We were getting into that AOL with having that closed, safe, proprietary bucket that, we're kind of the training wheels for people to get online. Oh, we don't need that. But instead, we're, and I, I didn't coin the term splinternets. It's been around for quite a while. But we're almost back to that with people coming into closed-ish environments, trying to have everything in one place so you don't need to go anywhere else. Yeah, I see a lot of that in music still or att attempts at that. But I mean, you know, this is, this is the very, very different worlds. I don't know if you're... Uh, you know, comparing space programs versus Gemini or Mercury before Apollo um, or w whatever it was. But the, these were, and I, I said this in your class, actually, these were, you know, initial revs at entertainment, media companies, other types of verticals, online strategies. In fact, um, while I was there, this is 95, 97, 97, <coughs> you know, loads and loads of companies would look at us and go, well, we want our own website, you know. Um, are you going to give access via your web browser to our website? And why would we publish on your platform if we can publish on our own website? And, and it actually, by the way, you know, I think audiences now think about AOL maybe as some afterthought that became part of an overall advertising vehicle. We were mostly subscription-driven at the time. We charged our members by the hour, and uh, we shared that revenue with our content partners. And so, you know... Uh, if you spent more time in VH1 online, right, or Fox online or BMG online, you know, we'd be able to charge more, share more revenue. Um, that model changed. Uh, uh, Bob Pittman, who, you know, now is a Clear Channel chairman, came in and, and I think 
reinvigorated or just changed AOL's business model, made it an all-you-can-eat model. Um, and I think it was, was it 10 or 12? It was 20 bucks a month. And, and that led to this enormous surge in usage. This was around 96. I think the company was sued by a lot of states, actually, because we had all sorts of usage issues. And uh, you know, it, was, it was a genuinely chaotic experience to, to, to sit through, basically, particularly if you're managing you know, large partners at the time. But you know, one of the things I recall, and I think it's, it's got to still be valid, um, is that we had you know, partner content areas that if they appealed to certain audiences, niche audiences, if you will, you know, they would be the, they would be the best. They would outperform all the others. I'll give you two examples, which is that when I got there, we had these like basically fan club communities, which were mostly just message boards that you post messages on. Nothing terribly sophisticated at all from Jimmy Buffett's fans. They call themselves the parrot heads and from the community of grateful dead fans. And, you know, these were things that were managed by fans, people who were doing it as a labor of love. These things were tremendously more popular than MTV, VH1, you know, pick it, pick the media property, Spin, Rolling Stone, all of whom we had patiently licensed and created all these, you know, sophisticated revenue sharing scenarios with lawyers. So, you know, and I, I, think, I think that's still kind of valid today, if you will, if you, if you look out at, you know, what, what appeals where, and you really have to hit those fans and, and engage them online. Um, so it was, it was a different kind of complexion, a different group of things that I was managing there compared to where I'd come from, which were major Hollywood studios and major labels in LA, where there were rules and, you know, and, uh, this was a little bit more of a lawless environment. A lot of fun though. So I don't want to spend too much time in, in older term history. So you're doing such interesting things now, but how did you end up from that to Microsoft and what are the other kind of uh, pivot points or pain points on the journey? Well, my group at AOL got blown up, you know, during this, this sort of business, you know, transition they made in uh, 96, 97. And so I moved back to New York. I worked at Viacom in a, business development role for a while. And I, I joined after about a year, joined a, um, a smaller arm of Liberty media that had music assets. So I've always been attracted once I got kind of the AOL bug um, to smaller growing parts of the, of the company rather than sit in corporate basically. And so through my own research, I saw there was a growing kind of music holding company in downtown Manhattan that held a bunch of different music assets, Sonic net, which was one of New York's kind of seminal music web websites Bought a, bought a West Coast service called Addicted to Noise, a um, bunch of other assets like The Box, and, which was an early cable network, and um, joined them for a year. And, and they went and merged with Viacom a year later. So, There's a bit of a round uh, trip that happens. Yeah, but I didn't want to go back. So I, at the time, I had met just during my AOL period um, someone who's still a mentor and a model to me, a guy I still look up to and a close friend, a guy named Kevin Conroy, who has had some similar career parallels to me. Um, you know, and I believe I gave BMG their first sort of online deal while I was at AOL. Kevin introduced me, had the foresight to introduce me to, at the time it was a big independent music group with a funny name. It's called Zamba Recording Corporation. And woo, it was about a billion in revenue, so it wasn't that small or a little bit under, I believe. But um, it held Jive Records and Verity Records, Silvertone, 
bunch of professional music industry uh, businesses as well, management companies, and um, you know went and met their COO at the time. Um, it was a really different cultural sort of. They were kind of much harder core harsh music guys. I was like, these are really tough dudes. I'm not sure I could <laughs> get along with them. In fact, I I don't know if I stormed out of the lunch, but I left leaving the first lunch going, you know, this is not a guy. Get along, whatever. And uh, turns out a year later, I joined them to after this Liberty Media experience and, and and did digital business development and strategy for them leading their digital team starting in 99. Um, this is a company that kind of supernova uh, while I was there. We had these teen pop artists, um, you know, Britney Spears and the Backstreet Boys and, uh, you know, Justin Timberlake was in a group called NSYNC that came to us from, from RCA at the time and a lot of other artists as well. Um, and just the company, you know, was really the largest and most successful of all the indies. And I had a role there with, you know, a digital team where we were experimenting with, with basically this country's first real generation of digital music services. The, the three-year period, the four-year period before iTunes had launched, there were dozens of digital music startups in the U.S. and Europe and Asia that were trying to build a legitimate digital music ecosystem. So we were licensing to all of them, selling to all of them, but also investing in some of them. And the, these things ranged from, you know, what I guess I'd call foundational digital technologies like DRM providers to early versions of streaming services. I don't know, companies like Liquid Audio, Click Radio, Reciprocal Music, AT&T had something called A2B, an Atlanta-based company called Amplified, you know, Supertracks in Oregon, trying to test all these out with our content. Um, and with early stage sales and distribution programs. So, so as a deal dude, you've seen probably more diverse deals across business models than most people. Yeah, I mean, from the digital music perspective, I've certainly seen loads of different flavors of it, loads. And, um, you know, I mean, you know, I still remember just to, to zip back to even one second to the early days of AOL. I mean, I think we did the first digital download for the company with a John Mellencamp song in 96. And, it, you know, it took, 45 minutes to get one song, but we, we had 80,000 come for free, you know, people downloaded it. We thought that was amazing. Um, mm -hmm. But, we, you know, some of these other things, which are probably equally absurd, but, you know, trying to sell downloads for 2 to $4, you know, a la carte around 91, uh, 99, 2000, 2001, you know, era, where, you know, the download's incompatible with certain types of devices. So, you know, a lot of the early attempts of trial balloons to build the, the digital music business were, you know, I don't want to say laughable, but that they were, that's all they were. And we, you know, we were, we were trying to find models that, that worked. Most of the companies we tested out are gone. I mean, I think Rhapsody is still around or Napster, whatever the name is now, but all the rest are, you know, they're gone. But the company was sold through a put option forcibly to BMG Music, it's one of the most spectacular transactions of all time. I don't know if it was it was meant by design or by happenstance, but our owner Clive Calder put put the company forcibly to BMG Music in two thousand three, and so a put. And I've got ten years in banking, so I've kind of lived yep. too much. But um, a put being that it's an option in a contract to to have the right to sell under certain conditions to the other person. Absolutely. And I think, I think, I mean, I wasn't 
intimately privy to the details of the put or the call option. There was a call option, I believe it. At the time, this entity that I was working for, Zamba, which most people know as Jive Records, um, had distribution deals. And, you know, um, this is also very different from the, the current state where, you know, to get into the markets at the time in a big way, you needed a major to distribute you, I think. Um, and so we had these distribution partnerships in the U.S. and then internationally with BMG from the U.S. and I believe internationally with a company called EMI, which is, was, was Britain's crown, crown jewel that's, that's now part of Universal. And I believe in the BMG deal, they had these kind of put and call contracts and BMG had a minority pieces of this company jive. And um, Mr. Calder was able to go to BMG and say, look, um, I, I don't know what the multiple was, but if, assuming it was say an eight times cash flow, and Gigi, you can probably explain this better than I can. Um, you know, here's the value of the company now, given that we've got in sync the Backstreet Boys, you know, and Britney Spears. Um, sales and so the the company was 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 put forcibly to BMG for I believe it was around two point five billion you know just small um, change just yeah. small change <laughs> probably a little bit more than what it was actually worth but but nonetheless you know that that's what it was and there was quite a fight for eight months and I had a you know an incredibly quixotic eight month period where I was kind of told sit in your office, don't do anything, don't do any earth shaking deals, we'll figure something out. And, um, you know, I, I was able to make a transition um, to BMG. Um, they kept me and some of the people at Jive left, some of the senior people. Um, and I kind of started, this is around 2003, 2004. And at the time, you know, um, groups of people had, um, I think, sat with Apple. Um, you know, I'll mention a guy named Paul Vidic who ran Warner, uh, EVP of strategy and business development and others. And they figured out presumably a way to launch a store that was, you know, easier to use, um, more, you know, more, more acceptable to the public than some of the things we've been trying. And so the, the iTunes store launched in 2003 while I was at BMG. And, um, I know, I think it was a, you know, a, a huge transformational you know, part of, you know, uh, the industry's development, at least digitally speaking at the time, you know, and that alongside with um, mobile carriers and, you know, mobile phones getting smarter and more sophisticated in particularly in international markets like Europe and Latin America, Brazil, um, <clears throat> started to get people coming to me from the organization asking these basic questions like, um, what is this thing called a polyphonic ringtone or a master <laughs> ringtone? What the uh, hell should we be doing with it? How should it price? You know, what, what should our, you know, and these are things that we genuinely do not have answers for. So I kind of attached myself to that um, off the menu. It wasn't something that I was supposed to be doing. And, um, and yet that got yeah. to be, you know, I, I was, uh, you know, looking at all the projections at the time or people, that was the saving grace. These, these way too highly priced ringtones that you had to sideload um, because, and people didn't know how to cut and edit their own stuff or couldn't other than a couple hacky software things that you could actually get off the shelf at uh, Circuit City. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, the, that was going to be the saving grace for a while or ringbacks or all that fun stuff. Yeah. Well, ringback toes. Absolutely. And I think, I think, you know, look, I'm a big believer in the mobile market, Jim. I still am. So, you know, I'm, I'm, 
you're not going to get me to, uh, you know, knock ringtones ever. Actually, I think that there's something about personalization, you know, and I, I'm not speaking to what Spotify does with playlists, but I think, you know, I, I, I think there's uses for these things and there's certainly, and I mentioned this to your class too, if you, if you think about how they were priced, well, some people can say that's, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous to pay $2.50 or $4 for a ringtone. Um, but, you know, I mean, um, there are things that you pay a convenience for or a premium for convenience. And so that informs some of these mobile products. And, I, you know, I know um, when I got to Sony, so this company, BMG, merged with Sony around that time, 2003-2004. Again, kind of just to state the basics for, for people that are asking why all this merger activity, you know, the underlying revenue base of the recorded music industry was being... <clears throat> was being attacked. Yeah, we haven't even talked about private uh, piracy, but we at some point it'd be worthwhile to talk about that. Well, we've got what I, what yeah. I want to do is bring us to the current era, and, okay. and 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 part of it is that you bring that great lens of having um, uh, worked through all of these ex changes to get to where we are now. Finally, not on a downward but an upward trajectory for recorded music but now 75% is streaming in the US, but, but trying to figure out how do you put deals together with disparate areas, which I find fascinating um, in this new era. So how do you take those superpowers of all that stuff that you saw and worked on and how are you doing that? How in the world did you get engaged with Latin America? What's happening there? And, mm -hmm. and how do you think about con new types of contracts with some of these new relationships? Sure. So those are, you know, there's, let me, let me take the Latin stuff first. Cause it just, and I'll, I'll just try not to address it for too long because the, the first piece of your question is really interesting, but you know, I, I survived the Sony BMG merger by looking for parts of the world where there was developing digital opportunity and where we were quite simply very under-resourced and you know, there's an enormous, Latin American market, big piece of it in the U.S., 60 million people sitting right in front of most of our noses that people don't always recognize as a, as a, you know, a market, but it is, and a big region where I started to get these, these absurd questions that I just mentioned to you, like, well, what's a ringtone? Yep. And so I put my, uh, my neck out the line and went, went to our presidents, a um, guy named Thomas Gwicki, who I still look up to a lot, who's at Warner Brothers now, and Thomas Hesse, who I have enormous respect for, who was our president and said, you know, I'm sitting in this corporate gig here at BMG and you're having me write spreadsheets. Why don't you let me go out and do deals and bring in revenue and, and really build a market for you? And, and you're not touching the Latin market. So here's a plan for me to do that. And I think they thought I was a little nuts because I'm not, you know, I. It's good to be a little nuts. <laughs> it's always good to be a little nuts. Well, they were like, you're, how are you connected to Latin America? I, mean, I speak Spanish fluently, but I, I didn't, you know, and so, but they let me, um, kind of test out the markets from New York during this very complex merger between the two companies. And I started traveling all over the region, Brazil, Mexico, and, and doing very similar stuff to what I did at Jive, hooking up revenue-oriented deals for downloads and ringtones with carriers and download services early stage, and you know making bits of money for the Latin region, which is a separate arm of most organizations, either sitting in Miami or other places. And they... Everyone seemed to love it. So they, they moved me down to Miami in 2005 and I had a great six year run 
um, running and building their Latin teams throughout throughout the region, basically. And that that's how I um, I kind of got the Latin world, the Latin music business um, experience. And so, what does that mean now? Well, what I've tried to do since you know the this period, you know, the, I run a consulting. I call it Strat Americas, and the idea is to target you know, growth oriented areas of the entertainment business. We've got a pretty strong, whatever focus or depth in music, um, helping out with partnerships and strategy. And what, what we, we tend to do is look for, you know, high growth areas and we, we can go through them all, but social music, VR, blockchain, um, enterprise software where we can add value. Um, because I have a lot of Latin relationships now, whether we're talking in the U.S. or out in Mexico or Brazil or Argentina, we do tend to get a lot of client interest around the country and really around the world, um, you know, for Latin-oriented territorial um, opportunities. They may be content owners in Latin America or they may be American companies that want to go into some of these regions. So it, it's, it's, I think, given me a special kind of skill set um, that enables me to go out and um, help clients in, in, you know, in the Latin genre. And then you're working then across a whole bunch of interesting entertainment tech verticals that are kind of, I, I tend to think as music plus or music and connecting music to other interesting things happening. Yeah, I mean, and this has been kind of the best part of it, you know, is that, I mean, I think if, so I don't know if, if you, would, I mean, I, a couple kind of, you know, maybe qualifiers that I guess some of the bigger organizations, if you looked at, I don't know, Spotify or Apple Music or Deezer, even Amazon, some of these big companies that are very heavily resourced, um, they don't necessarily need the help of third parties or consultants. Sometimes they may, sometimes they may not, but there are lots of things happening outside of streaming. And I've, I've you know, written some blog posts about this in digital music that I think are very opportunistic, probably under-resourced, where, you know, people with business development headsets um, can really help out. And so, you know, I've kind of consciously tried to seek out a lot of those areas. I mean, so social music is probably the areas where, or what I'd call social music, where I've, I've kind of had the deepest engagement. I, I work with a, a big social app community called Smule, S-M-U-L-E. I guess it, Sonic Mule is what it stands for. I know it's, it's, it's a curious name. But you know what? I've never known what that stood for for all this time that company's been developing. Um, so, so when you say social music, it is music tools and applications by which we collaborate around music or comment or share because one could think that musically now, now as of, you know, end of 2018 um, uh, on by Dance and part of TikTok, you know, that that's social music in its own mm -hmm. weird, wacky way. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, yes to all of that. I mean, um, I think there's probably different verticals if you did a formal definition of some social music. I mean, certainly collaborative music. Um, and I, I'd add things like uh, Splice, which is, you know, a community that folks can share beats and producers can. And, um, you know, I don't know if it's still in existence, but Broad Jam, you know, Indaba, these are all communities that involve sharing or creation in some ways. That, um, and, you know, certainly collaborative ones with instruments, magic instruments. Smool itself, I believe, started as a, as a collaborative music community. I mean, they have an app called uh, Magic Piano. Magic Piano! Yeah. And the Octarina. I used to play right, the Octarina go. where you blow into your iPad. 
Yeah. And, um, you know, auto, what is it? Auto rap. You can turn your voice into a rapper. And, you know, and I think those things, I mean, Smool's, um, you know, marquee application is, is sing and, and um, where, you know, you, you sing with a star and that, that's most of what I've been doing for them is bringing in artists and major Latin artists into their app. But I mean, I think even just the raw collaborative ones like a magic piano, uh, probably more people use it, you know, than, than just, you know, doing the full on singing with the star. If you're sitting, you know, on a subway or in a bus, you're probably not going to be singing, you know, learning out a song in front of 50 other people. I don't know. Sure. Somebody was definitely yeah. doing that in the seat behind me on the LA Metro yesterday. Oh, but wow. Was, okay. You know, not necessarily but with I'll, that app, but they were singing along to. But, but what I mean, really, music. but for me, I mean, to your real question, I mean, to me, um, and, you know, musically and TikTok are probably, you know, I think that that app has been subsumed into TikTok yep. and bike dance. I think it's more part of a broader I don't know, news and content strategy as it is purely music. And, and I believe musically it was actually lip syncing where an app like sing is, you know, we bring in stars and the stars have to sing and you got to sing with the star. And, and it's definitely much more of a collaborative approach than just lip syncing. So to me, I'm probably partial, but small is a truer, you know, representation of, of, you know, of, of what we're talking about in terms of social music. But what I really mean by social music is even zipping up higher is the aggregation of communities and artists connecting with the communities. It's all about that connection. And I think that's, you know, probably the thing that informs why it's so successful and so intriguing to me. It isn't necessarily a core function of a digital music, you know, uh, digital music or recorded music per se, as much as it is about the fans connecting with their audiences based with their artists, their favorite artists. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what's so cool about it to me. Um, and I, I think, you know, if you look at like small, you know, what I've seen in terms of the usage in Latin America, we, we've, I've probably been responsible for, I don't know, directly or indirectly, probably 75, 80, I don't know, are different types of artists coming in to perform from the biggest, uh, Osuna or J Balvin, um, two lots, you know, Sebastian Yatra, Carlos Vives, but, you know, lots of other independent ones or smaller ones that are developing. And what is so cool about it is the artists tend to see the interaction between, you know, their fans and themselves in, in kind of an organic way. It looks live. We just tape the artist once. And um, that tends to override a lot, of, a lot of these other things that we've been talking about, including business models, by the way. It's not, it's not without going into detail, it's, some of these things are very basic screaming models. They're not things where, you know, big giant advance checks are being written. It's more about kind of promoting to your audience and connecting, connecting with the audience. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I think it's a cool area. It's, it's definitely one of these areas where I don't see some of these streaming services dominating it. So. Um, then you had mentioned uh, AR, VR, mixed reality stuff. What are you experiencing in that? Uh, potentially overhyped and still moving its way world? Well, it definitely, you know, I just got back from CES mm -hmm. last week in Las Vegas and I was, um, you know, pleasantly blown away, pleasantly surprised to shock to see the area that I've been working on in VR, which is the underlying audio, um, spatial audio or 3D audio. And probably some people hear that and roll their eyes, but that, you know, it's the, one of the more fundamental parts of the content environments is to spatialize the audio along with the video. And, um, 
you know, there's loads of very interesting audio technologies that are in the market. Um, and I've worked for several of them. One, one is, uh, it's called Mach one. That's done quite a bit of work with film studios that, that has a, a little bit of an enhanced product tweak and that it, it, it can pan the audio in addition to spatializing it. Um, and some of the major studios like Fox have worked with that. Um, pan, and another pan meaning that you can take the existing audio and have it have sides to it. That is then part of the engagement with the, the perceived space. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And that, that, you know, there, there, I mean, there's probably dozens of these audio technologies in the market, but my kind of area that I've landed in that touches VR because of the music background has been through the spatial audio um, world. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually an investor and a shareholder and have been an active consultant advisor to a company called Bach, Bach audio that is, um, created by just a, a brilliant guy named Edgar Schwery on the East Coast. Uh, he's a Princeton physics professor. Um, that company in Florida has picked up kind of the IP license on. And that was kind of my earlier steps, you know, looking at the VR world, um, trying to get that partnered, whether it's with hardware platforms or, you know, spatial audio can land in an automobile. So you can give, if you're driving a Ford, you know, the kids can listen to something different than the parents up front, you know, and you, you can also put it on a speaker um, and even a cheap speaker, you can hear the audio being spread out. Um, so I was also really blown away. Sony, Sony now has something that they just, I think it's, is it 360 audio, 360 real? I can't remember the name of it, but um, Sony actually has its own spatial audio that it just brought out specifically just for music, not even talking about VR. Um, and you know, Magic Leap is coming out with, you know, more and more product uh, enhancements and, and content associations. I saw, for example, Sennheiser has has a new product called Ambio that, you know, literally spatializes audio to music and images. So just a lot of cool activity around 3D audio has been sort of probably the area where I spent most of my time. I mean, I see plenty of platforms um, that are trying to be maybe the next YouTube for VR or the maybe the next event-based music platform for VR. Um, Endless Wave, The Wave, Next VR. Uh, there's one here. Some folks from Australia have just landed. They're trying to do a live kind of event-oriented VR strategy. The, the, you know, there's quite a few actually um, around the country. I, I don't necessarily see any that have some business model that, are going to be wildly successful at, you know, at this point, they're not revenue generators for, for the industry. So I can't tell you that the hype is untrue, you know, mm -hmm. probably is, it is probably is true right now. Um, but, you know, uh, definitely spend a little more time on the audio stuff. And <clears throat> the, uh, the other, and it's a little more closely linked to that is, you know, kind of AI and bots. I mean, there's definitely these interesting bot communities out there, the bot platform in the UK, there, there's one here in, uh, in LA called Stashimi, uh, Octane is another that are all trying to automate some of that dialogue between communities. They might be on messenger or artists, or in some cases brands. And I've had a little bit of experience in that area as well. I think that's kind of a, a quieter, um, but kind of exciting area that that's developing too. 
You have covered the covered the waterfront. You have done all sorts of interesting things working with the, the historically changing music innovation space. You are working with a diverse group of folks looking at what I do tend to call music plus, where music's changes and other industries' changes are kind of overlapping, where you can find opportunity and bringing different regions together. You've shared a little bit on where we are going on a few things. Uh, putting on your... Uh, Wizard's Hat and Crystal Ball, what excites you looking forward? Well, um, that's a great, great question. I mean, to me, probably, I mean, I think the social music is, is very, very exciting area to me. But what, what excites me, I think, the most is kind of the increasing globalization of, of music and digital music growth, basically. Um, so a lot of these areas that I'm touching on are super exciting to me. Um, but I mean, one of the things I've seen in the US is kind of this sort of uh, cross-cultural mix of content, if you will. So mm -hmm. for example, I, you know, I did a little work with Smool with the artist named Luis Fonsi who had a track last year called Despacito. Just a tiny track, just yeah. a tiny track. And we didn't know when we worked on that, it was going to be su such an explosion, but, but, you know, cl clearly was, and it, you know, and it clearly was, a, you know, engaged lots of different audiences. And to me, that kind of mix, if you will, informs a lot of things because I think, um, you know, all these businesses we're talking about, we haven't even talked about live music or blockchain, some of the ticketing and event stuff, all, all these areas have potential disruptive aspects to it where there are actual businesses out there. But I mean, I think to me, this kind of blending is, is very exciting, if you will, whether it's content or whether it's just business interests that, that you know, want to partner in, in, in Africa or in Asia or in Latin America. I, I see some of my industry colleagues from the Latin region doing things in, in Africa now or taking on global roles where some of the stuff they've learned in emerging markets can be applied across a lot of different technologies and verticals. And that's, I think that kind of continuing globalization is, is super exciting to me because I think there's loads of digital opportunity that will develop in some of these new markets that we're talking about. Well, we are pretty much near the end of our conversation. We could, I think, probably talk for another couple of hours on stuff. What would be something you want to make sure you mention before we wind up today? Well, I think, you know, I mean, I said this to your class, but I think it's, you know, it's, 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 it's looking to some of these underlying areas of the digital business that aren't resourced and are still developing that may not be the flashiest things that are in the headlines where I think the growth is going to come from basically. And that's, that's what I've tried to do, you know, as a digital business developer and what, what I'm continuing to do. So that's, that's probably what I'd leave in, in everyone's mind. So if people want to follow up with you or bug you about any of these things you've talked about. How could they best find you? They can definitely go to my site, which is stratamericas.com, or you can email me at seth at stratamericas.com, and we'd be happy to talk to you. And I really appreciate uh, the chance to speak to you. It was great. I'm hoping to keep it up with you and as well as your classes at UCLA. Any place to find you on the socials? Uh, you can find me at, at my LinkedIn is Seth Shackner. Um, just look me up. And, and also on Twitter, it's at stratamericas or at Seth A. Shackner as well. Great. Well, thanks for joining us and uh, best of luck on all of your continuing adventures. Thanks so much. Okay. Well, that wraps up this podcast. 
Many thanks to the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music and the UCLA Center for Music Innovation for being our hosts of this ongoing series. You can subscribe to us in all the usual places, or you can come find us at innovation.schoolofmusic.ucla.edu. Join us again to follow the other adventures that we will be tracking down in innovating music. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. You have found one of our adventures now in the Marimel Podcast Network. You can find our shows everywhere that you listen to podcasts. We've got Amplify Music Conversations from the Amplify Music Conferences during the pandemic, Creative Innovators, and now Innovating Music. If you're interested in following up with us in any of these shows, please reach out on our websites, and you can find those in the show notes.